This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another edition of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Bogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm well. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? So today uh, we have Arian uh, Agababai, and he is the uh, co-founder uh, and uh, president of Hollow Inc. or Hollow AM, as they're uh, known. And that is a startup. Well, well actually, um, Arian was a, a fluid dynamics PhD student. And then he he started something called the the Invention Works, which you've never heard of, because you know about a year or no two years into his uh, his invention of a uh, uh, you know that polarization 3D printer, it was bought by Autodesk. And oh. then you have definitely heard. I, I'm pretty sure you've heard uh, of what uh, Arian did after that, because he was at Autodesk for a couple of years. And what he did is he uh, made the the Ember. And you have seen the Ember, you've seen it, and I know that a lot of uh, it's uh, a lot of um, what's they called the like, like invent labs that develop materials have Ember three D printers because it was like a really accessible, open kind of settings uh, VAT polymerization printer, and uh, also uh, so he kind of like uh, yeah he went on to develop that at Autodesk. Then Autodesk got a bit well. That was a weird time in Autodesk. Maybe maybe Aaron can talk about it. It was a weird and really cool time. I was literally thinking about going there. I'm like, I should work here because this place is nuts. And then later on, he I think he took the basic invention that he did as Ember, a printer, out, and then he turned it into Hollow. And Hollow is a company that's trying to industrialize slurry SLA or, or slurry vat polymerization into a technology that can produce metal parts inexpensively. Slurry SLA is a technology that uh, uses VAT polymerization and a metal-loaded particles thing, or metal-loaded uh, material uh, to, uh, you know, essentially, uh, you know, through a, a couple of uh, steps, you know, make really fine, really smooth metal parts inexpensively. It's a technology that a couple other companies are using as well. And uh, like Metshape, for example, is using it, and uh, a couple of other companies. And Hollow is trying to do this with copper and, and aluminum and all sorts of really cool materials and trying to really industrialize it. So they're really trying to make millions of parts. So that's really cool. And yeah, so that's it. Uh, uh, welcome to the show, Aaron. Hi, good morning, guys. How are you? Yeah, good, good, good. good. How are you? Yeah, doing well, thanks. Okay, cool, cool. So uh, so first off, tell us a little bit, um, how did you get involved with, uh, with, uh, with, with additive, first off? Because you were like you were a fluid dynamics student, so I'm pretty sure that additive and fluid dynamics, that's kind of like a nice mix, right? Is, that, did you, is it Not first in college? Not enough fluid dynamics or? people in, <laughs> in our industry. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's always one of those, yeah, you're one of those stories that you look back on and you're like, well, actually, how did it happen, you know? Um, but yeah, I was, I was doing my PhD. I was at the University of Bristol. Um, and actually, I was partway through my PhD and my supervisor, who was the only person who was doing kind of rocket-based fluid dynamics, he, he just upped and left. Um, and so I was kind of out without anybody to provide me with any guidance and, and was feeling a little lost. Um, but down the road from where I studied, uh, Bristol is, is Bath University, and if, if you remember way back in the early you know, 2010, 2011 timeframe, that's where Adrian Bauer was. Um, and so the RepRap movement was coming out of really a university that was just down the road. And I stumbled upon it, 
um, was very curious about it and just decided to, to out of my lab because no one was keeping an eye on me, just decided to start building a, a 3D printer and, and see what this is all about. Um, and that got me like really interested in, in the premise and the promise of the technology. But, you know, in those early, early days, the, the FDM technology back then, you know, you'd be lucky if you got a print out a week, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, I was working on designing these rocket nozzles and it was actually really, really difficult for the in-house machine shop that we had to, um, to, to make these things. And especially at the speed or the variety that I needed them in order to test. Um, and a light bulb just went on. You know, it was this idea that, oh, okay, we have this technology now that um, you know, seemingly I'm building over a, a couple of week period where perhaps if there was an improvement in it, you could use, utilize it in, in a way that would enable designers and engineers. And so that was kind of my accidental discovery into additive. And then what, what brought along the idea of, of using like a slurry solution? I mean, is this just because you're studying thermo or not thermo, um, fluid dynamics that you're like, there's got to be a way of combining these two. <laughs> well, you know, so I, I, one of my, so my co-founder, so he was studying, he was doing his master's in, in aerospace engineering as well. Um, his name's Pierre Lin. And, you know, our, our story goes, I was literally carrying components of this, of this FDM printer in, our, in, in the halls of our university and bumped into him. And we both, you know, after just, a coffee decided that we should maybe we should start a company to see how much we can advance this technology and it was i'll give him full credit for this it was him who really came up with this idea of well hey if we can use a you know there was already projector based dlp based stereolithography at the time but um what was not yet present was this idea of using a, a led uh, you know then there were these really expensive kind of halogen, you know, halogen bulbs in, in these systems. And we were like, okay, well, if we can just use this kind of low-cost 405 nanometer LED DLP, perhaps we can get a technology that's $100,000 um, for a printer down to $5,000. And if it's $5,000, then we can bring this high-resolution technology, even though it was still polymer at the time, um, and democratize it. And, you know, one of the, the things that has driven us, both us, both of us and the companies that we've, we've had over the years is, and I know this is, a, this is a really overstated phrase I'm about to say, but I, I will say that it is something that, that um, has been a driving force for us is how do we lower the barriers of adoption? How do we get more people to find value? In, in using this technology. And at that time, the, the, the key driver was cost. And so we were really focused on how can we um, decouple this relationship between high resolution, um, speed, utility, and cost. Um, and so that was our first, that was what the Invention Works was all about. In, invention Works was about developing this VAT polymerization based approach to DLP SLA with a low cost LED and creating something that um, we could uh, enable designers and engineers with. But then, you know, 
as as you already said, Joris, we happen to have a, you know, happen to right, meet the right people at the right time, and we joined Autodesk, and we we took that vision that we had. We we recognized, you know, we were a couple of hardware engineers. Um, who were messing around with chemistry that we should not be messing around with in a windowless uh, <laughs> lab. There was no, no ventilation whatsoever. No ventil- yeah, no hoods, no nothing. Right? Um, and, uh, and, and we joined Autodesk, and this was at the time where Pier 9 uh, was doing some wild and wonderful things, and we, we turned that vision kind of supercharged with Autodesk's power into what became the Ember 3D printer. Sorry, Go but ahead. how far had you gotten before Autodesk came in? Like we had a, a working prototype. You had a working prototype. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We yeah. we could build we could build things, um, but we had hobbled together. Yeah, we were basically using like PowerPoint to to put <laughs> stuff on <laughs> to move you know, slide, slide by slide. <laughs> yeah, we were like I remember just before you know we were doing this like we were being invited to go over and 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 you you remember that classic Eiffel Tower. Uh, everyone no. built right it was I, I can't remember how many layers it was like a few thousand layers 200 yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a big one and I was sat there till 5am just going slide by slide by slide just making sure that we could build this thing um, but yeah we, we built Ember and and again that same that same um, drive of how do we lower the barriers of adoption was what led us to open source the design, which was which was pretty like counterintuitive at the time, because most of the other folks at that point were making a lot of their revenue on materials. So to open source not just the hardware, but also to publish what our formulation was for the design for the for the materials, and have other people you know open up the process parameters and have other people use their materials uh, was was counterintuitive. But it was all really about how can we expand the the adoption of this technology and then the other side of it as well other than you know the kind of philanthropic element of it was we were selling printers to industrial users we were selling printers to people in the jewelry industry who were doing lost wax casting dental industry same thing but what started to emerge for us was we were recognizing that people were creating value value in production, I should say, production-based applications by using SLA or DLP SLA as a stepping stone to metal. And that's where the cogs started turning to, to mm. what we would do next. I'd like to go back a bit because, like, first off, like, Autodesk buying, like, you guys, I was like, I heard about this, and I was like, what? What are they doing, right? <laughs> and, and, and this is, like, the first acquisition where they would probably have to explain to you why they're buying you. <laughs> 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 Not the other way around. But was it weird that they just like you know was it just really strange or do were you like okay why not what what was it? how did that you know work for you? I mean it was it was fast uh, that's for sure. Um, so what we recognized is that we didn't we had a lack of software expertise um, and one of the things that we were seeing is hey if we were going to really make this technology usable we had to have um, a software platform and enabling through like design capabilities and we really just did not know how to 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 make that happen i had gotten to know uh al dean um who was previously the editor of develop 3d over that time i was just having a conversation with him with expressing you know what i just said and 
he introduced us to Carl Bass. And we had a conversation with Carl Bass and it was really there that a vision was laid out around enabling, uh, you know, broadening the application of design software, Autodesk design software, and enabling that, that flow from design through to prototyping and production. And that, that was what legitimized the need for having hardware. Um, and so it was it really seen as an enabler. And this was also at the time, if you recall, uh, around uh, the, the 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 push for the Spark platform uh, by Autodesk. Uh, so uh, yeah, Spark. If you missed out on that, it was like a, a free platform. It was basically all the tools you would need as a maybe a young user or a starting user to get you into three D printing. It was kind of like an idea to grow the market and grow the market with Autodesk tools, and then get everyone to use. I don't know. It was one of these like you know, freemium was cool kind of things where everyone was supposed to use Autodesk ten years later or AutoCAD ten years later or something like that. Um, you guys were kind of like a, a hardware component to that strategy, right? So yeah, the hardware component ember there was really what was it was meant to demonstrate how you could use all of these tools that was being developed in uh, in on Spark um, through a hardware product. And of course, Autodesk wanted to partner and 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 do that with not just their own hardware product, uh, but also other other folks in the industry as well. So. How, what was it like working at Autodesk at that time? Because the, the, okay, the one job I, I've, I've applied for, right? I was somebody <laughs> recommended me for it, and I didn't get, was to be like the Fab Lab manager at Pier Nine. Mm-hmm. That was the job I missed out on in that same period as well, and, and that was a job I missed out on more mo, most. I think that's the one one job I wanted to get. And what, what, it must have been crazy to work there at that time. It must have been really really uh, exciting time, right? It was amazing. I was living in London. Um, we joined the company February 2014. I think Pier 9 had, had just opened the October or November of, uh, in 2013. And if you've not been, um, and you can still, I think, go on their website, it's an, it's an incredibly beautiful space. It's on the pier, it's on, on the waterfront in San Francisco. You get a beautiful view of the Bay Bridge. But I vividly remember, you know, we joined and the, this project to create our own, you know, Autodesk to create its own hardware, um, uh, hardware tool, um, hardware product was so secretive that we ended up back in a windowless closet where we had to uh, develop the printer. So we went from one windowless, like, ven- like no ventilation room in London to another windowless, no ventilation room at Pier 9, <laughs> despite so- the beauty of, of, of that building. Um, but... So you'd, you'd walk in every day, this beautiful backdrop of the San Francisco skyline and whatnot, and, and we go into a windowless room. We literally <laughs> went into the closet, and, uh, and everyone was like, who are these guys? And we would just right. walk silently you know, into, this, uh, into, into this room. The, the, the pier itself was this incredible space where there were artists in residence who were using... Uh, different software that Autodesk had developed, um, all of the digital fabrication tools that we had there. Um, And so there was just a a lot of amazing things going on. And it was a wild and wonderful place. Uh, I can imagine. That's an amazing place. And then so at one point point we had, well, there was the crazy days, right? And there was the heady days, the 3D printing is everything. Like that was when a lot of people thought that it was going to be used for everything, right? And at one point kind of, you know, the Autodesk kind of fell out of love with your technology, I guess, or fell out of love with the strategy, and you still had this metal printing idea uh, in your head, right? Yeah, I mean, I did, exactly. I mean, you know, 
20, I guess 2015 rolls around and um, you know, there's a big crash in the, in the market um, or in the consumer market. And um, Spark is still a legitimate platform, but there's a transition now from kind of the consumer space to the professional space. Um, and the hardware itself, whilst Ember was successful, it was just not core, it was not a core element to Autodesk. If you think about Autodesk, you know, it's really the company that makes architectural CAD tools, building information modeling tools. It's not the company you think of that makes hardware, right? So it was something that, that, that gave, you know, uh, it was a demonstrator for the Spark platform, but ultimately it was not something that Autodesk wanted to do long term. But as I was saying before, you know, what we were seeing were dental labs, jewelry labs doing this hybrid approach of using lost wax casting uh, for end use applications. You know, what I was not seeing with people who were just purely using our technology for polymers was end use parts. And a big part of that reason was just the material properties of, of these, these um, thermo, thermo set materials. Um, just don't match what you can see in thermoplastics. Now, obviously, what people like Carbon is doing kind of expanded those capabilities, but that was just not in our wheelhouse. But I, you know, at the time, I challenged the team to think about, was there a way that we could perhaps take the underlying technology, which is you know, essentially low-cost hardware, high speed because we have the parallelization of, of the projector. You know, we expose an entire layer in one go. It doesn't matter whether you have one part or a hundred parts, the print time is, is effectively the same. So you get these parallelized benefits for production and the high resolution of DLP and take that to metal. And uh, we were at a trade show. I remember this January, 2017, uh, we were at, um, I forget, one of the, the big trade shows in Anaheim. Mm. And we stumbled across metal injection molding. And I had myself, my, you know, my, one of my now co-founders, Brian Adzema, who, who had, he was one of, he's our um, head scientist here, material scientist. We had never come across this technology before, this idea that you could use a thermoplastic in that case, a classical injection molding piece of equipment, and, but in that feedstock have metal powder in it and then use that uh, to injection mold relatively cheaply and then center the part so that you could get a, a, a metal part. So you're going from a, effectively a bound metal polymer part to a fully dense metal part. And the light bulb went on for us simultaneously. We were like, oh, this is how we could do it. We could use our photopolymer to bind together these metal powders to create these what they call green parts and then we'll take that to a sintering oven and we'll remove that binder and we'll create these metal parts but now we just don't have to do that with a mold so we we could effectively simulate and be like mem but without the mold and that's how we then started the idea of what would eventually become hollow okay, okay. and then normally yeah but, but uh, at the time, you were out, I think you were uh, able to kind of spin back out or something. You spun back in and then kind of spun back out of Autodesk, right? That's also a little bit uncommon, right? Yeah, so that was, <laughs> um, it, it was a situation where 
clearly Autodesk was, was starting to move away from the idea of wanting hardware. And um, so I proposed the idea of a, what if we raised venture capital and effectively spun this back out? Um, because we had a lot of good IP and we had a, a, a very talented team. And we still, yeah, we, I'm very proud of the fact that we still have that team here and we've been able to build on it. But we had done a lot of really good work at Autodesk on advancing DLP-based technologies. Um, and it, uh, it, to me and Pierre, we were very passionate about the idea that this should continue. And, and Autodesk agreed. And so we, we raised venture capital here in, in Silicon Valley. And actually on the 21st of November, it'll be our fifth birthday, we, we successfully spun out um, uh, retaining all of our IP and, and uh, started down the road of building what we are building now at Hollow. Okay, okay. It's, yeah, mm. I think it's a remarkable story. It's kind of like a really, I, it must have been crazy. It must have been very head spinning for you, like all of a sudden find yourself in this corporate from academia. Right. And, and then, then to get <laughs> yourself back out again on top of it is it's quite impressive. Uh, you're right, settling let's... in, saying, oh, I'll get my, mm. my 25 year Autodesk disc or whatever. And, uh, right. <laughs> and I could get old here. This is all right, you know? And then you're like, oh. And then, <laughs> yeah, 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 forget that. Um, well, that. Well, it was kind of crazy because I had, uh, you know, 2014. To 2016, I was traveling effectively back and forth between London and San Francisco, and in January 2016, I, I moved. I, I emigrated, and by mid 2016, it was like, oh, okay, maybe we should come up with another idea here. And, and uh, so, yeah, the, the, those that, those periods and the period since uh, has has just been one uh, one very steep learning curve. I'll mm -hmm. just say that. What I think is really interesting is I think if you would have stayed like a six months or a year kind of plugging away at this, right? There's so many people that are just like, oh, we well, have to keep trying, you know? I think you would have been fired, literally. I think under new management, you, they would have just said, look, we're going to get yeah, rid of all these guys that later. sounds about right. <laughs> and I think a lot of people would think like, you know what? They're losing interest in our project. We're going to spin it out. Boss, we're going to spin out this part of the company, you know? But not, I think it's a ballsy. It's a fantastic move. I thought it was wonderful. <laughs> it's a good, yeah, it's a good move, especially because as you pointed out, Autodesk's main goal isn't hardware it's software so of course that at some point they might get a little like yeah why do we have this hardware thing so yeah i think it was obviously it was a good move so. well it's, it's a funny thing you know you look back at an arc you, when you when you know I, I can look back now over 10 years and, and you could say oh yeah this whole thing was planned it was just like one decision after another of like, okay, what do we do now, guys? <laughs> and and it look and I appreciate what you guys are saying. I wish I had I was, you know, prophetic about it at the time, <laughs> right. but it was it was really <laughs> not the case. <laughs> okay, okay, so tell us a little bit about Hollow because okay, so Slurry SLA, we've we've had some people on like Lithos uses it. You know, that that's probably the most famous one. Medshape, Incus, um, they they all use it. And you guys also use a similar technology. And then we'll tell us a little bit about how it works. Because generally, I think we all understand. Specifically, I don't think any of us really understand. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I mean, I presume a large part of, of the folks listening to this will understand SLA. But, but let's mm -hmm. just start there, right? So, stereolithography, obviously, it's, it's the oldest 3D printing technology. Thanks to 3D systems, it's a process where you use a a light source, either a laser, in our case a DLP, a high-resolution projector, 
to expose a photosensitive material, a, li a liquid photopolymer. And when you expose it, it goes from a liquid to a solid, right? So that, that's, a, that's SLA, DLP-SLA. What we did, um, having done that with Ember, uh, we, as I was describing before, we realized we could add uh, powderized materials to our photopolymer. So whether that's a metal like copper, stainless steel, titanium, or even ceramics, um, like you mentioned, lithos, and you create a, a much more viscous slurry, right? So you take what's actually a pretty low viscosity photopolymer and you, you create something which is more like a cake frosting like consistency. And then you do the same thing. You use a DLP and you expose that to, uh, to build parts as you would stereolithography. But now that in that process of hardening from a liquid to a solid, you're trapping some of those, uh, those metal powders into the form that you ultimately want to build uh, as a metal part. Now, after this, actually, everything is identical for us. It's identical to metal injection molding. That part is, is scaled up because you're eventually going, that part's going to eventually shrink um, as you remove the binder and densify the particles. But you put that part into a, into a sintering oven, a sintering furnace, and you get to a certain temperature. You take it up to a certain temperature where you what's called debind. Uh, in our case, we thermally debind. So we break down that photopolymer, um, and what you're left with is a skeleton of lightly sintered metal particles. We then elevate that temperature to the sintering temperature of that material, um, and that causes those metal particles to, to densify, wick, everything shrinks, and you get to uh, these full-density metal parts. Okay, I have one thing that's always confused me about this. It's like, I can understand kind of in my head how this works for binder jet, but mm -hmm. for me, like, how do I make sure? How do I? How do these metal particles that are just kind of in flowing in this liquid, right? How do they end up in a kind of semi-organized way in, uh, in the right way? Let's say, is there just so much of them, and are they so equally spaced? How do they end up like making part of that part in a in an organized way? Yeah, so I mean, that's actually where a lot of our IP is. It's in our material science and in, in how we make sure that these materials are stable um, and those powders are organized and they don't change temporally as you're building, as well as in the hardware. Um, so, you know, DLP SLA is, um, you know, or general SLA is what you would call VAT polymerization. In our case, it's not actually quite. It's not actually a vat. Uh, we we do a, a thin film approach to to printing these materials. So the design of the hardware itself goes a long way into ensuring that the particle distribution across a layer and through layers is uniformly distributed. Are you, okay, okay. Are you putting down a layer of this? very thick slurry essentially exposing it and then wiping away what didn't harden or are you or is that can you that's right the, the, exactly yeah. and, okay. and, and then we re actually we reuse that material so Ooh, our material utilization is is very very high we, we um whatever wasn't used in a previous layer we will relay uh down as the next layer mm -hmm. and then i've always wondered with green parts like this where you have to then put it into a centering oven how do you prevent it from collapsing? 
It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apart when carrying them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I always, yeah, when I do it by hand or something, I always have to make flat parts and then join them later or something. So in in with MIM in general, you you have what's called furniture. Um, so ceramic pieces, effectively, that you use to ah. support, um, especially you know, the the big challenge is is gravity. <laughs> so if you have, imagine an upside down L, right? Um, mm-hmm. That cantilever will will sag under gravity, um, especially when you get up to centering temperatures. And so you put little pieces of ceramic pieces, you know, to support these geometries. The ceramic won't bond with the with the metals because it's uh, it centers at a much higher temperature, and it ends up supporting everything as it shrinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so then could you use uh, one of uh, the uh, ceramic printers to do your support and then combine the two? <laughs> oh yeah, c- conceptually, yeah, you could. You, you, yeah, conceptually, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you could even maybe do it on the same thing. That that is, I think. Well, yeah, that's really right. Yeah, I could have like. Um, <laughs> I don't know um, how that be, but. Yeah. Uh, but also, and also, like okay, but then of course, there's, that's one step. That sucks, right? Or no, carrying it, like let's say conveying it, sucks because it could collapse on its weight. <laughs> then you have to support it to debind. De- but then you get this melt of flow and stuff. If you uh, if you um, and you get shrinkage rates that can vary, uh, you know, according to geometry and and wall thickness, all sorts of stuff. And how do you control for that? Because that's of course the next big problem with any of these processes, right? Right. So, I mean, I think, our, you know, you, you mentioned binder jetting. Our technology is actually quite different from binder jetting, especially in terms of the actual photopolymer and, and the science behind our photopolymer and, uh, and also just the printing process itself. So, um, yeah, we spent a lot of time working on the, on the binder technology because it, it's something that has to be strong enough uh, for us to print um, and, and have a robustness in the green parts. Uh, I like to say that you know our, our green parts really have the consistency of a crayon, so you can handle them very easily. Um, and the good thing there is that means our, our uh, yields of parts coming off the printer, and, and because it's a powderless process, we're not depowdering these parts. Um, it's very, very high. And so we get this complexity of these very fine features and these intricacies of internal geometries because we don't have to debind. But the other element of the of the binder uh, is that it has to burn cleanly, so that we're not introducing any contaminants to the, the final part. Uh, so that we ensure that if we're saying we're printing pure copper, chemically it is pure copper, stainless steel. Chemically it is stainless steel, and it has the mechanical properties or the electrical properties and conductivity properties that you would expect. Now, the other element of of the binder. And the printer is designing it in such a way or developing it in such a way that during that shrinking process that we are able to maintain um, dimensional stability. So the the point that you were making or the question that you were asking earlier, Joris, around how do we make sure all these particles are exactly where we expect them or we need them to be is actually uh, the critical question. And ensuring that those metal particles are evenly distributed in the geometry is what allows us to actually uh, be able to center these parts, even though they do shrink, with uh, little to no deformation or distortion. And the, I'm able to say that because you know we have worked very, very hard on this, and for the customers that we we service um, and we provide parts to, 
we are being asked to hold tolerances of plus or minus 25 microns on, on these dimensions, which we are doing. And we're doing that you know, on uh, you know, dozens of different prototype geometries every week. Um, and that's really a testament to uh, the work that has taken place in the design of that photopolymer. Yeah. So just the software like compensates around shrinkage and all that kind of stuff in order to figure out what it needs to do to print it and then fire it? Actually, the software for us is more around um, in, in, is maximizing smoothness and holding tolerances um, on these kind of fine features through the printing process. We, we, mm -hmm. we don't need to do any pre-deforming um, so we don't do any of that uh, kind of pre-distortion that I think some other folks are doing in the industry, and we've not found that we need to do that. Um, and as, we, as, we, as we'll get to, I presume, talking about the fact that we're a service provider rather than a hardware provider, you know, we, pro we produce anywhere from pro prototype to production of various different geometries every single week. And so... What we're seeing in our technology is that um, we we just don't need that kind of pre-deformation or distortion software uh, that that uh, other folks in the industry are using. Yeah. And also because also your technology works, and maybe I made the mistake of like you know putting it too much like in Litos and stuff because your technology does work different. You've got multiple nozzles and stuff like that. I don't know uh, how comfortable you are talking about that kind of stuff, right? But it does work differently, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not fully up to speed of the architecture of other folks, but yes, the, you know, the embodiment of our hardware is quite different um, from what other people are doing. And I, I will say, you know, because we are a service provider and then we do not, at this stage, we're not selling our hardware, the, the benefit of that is we are learning on, an, on a daily basis. And every time we get new parts from customers and we supply parts to customers and we learn their requirements and their specifications. Um, we also learn what we need to do, what modifications we need to make to our hardware, to our materials, or to our software to keep up mm. with those requirements. And we can do that. You know, we can make a change to the hardware. You know, we might learn something today, and we'll make a change to the hardware on Monday so that our customer gets those benefits on Tuesday. Um, so we can just move very, very quickly in, in making the advancements we need um, and, and learning at a very, very high rate. Are you, is your intent to remain in that service bureau state for an extended period of time? Or are you hoping to actually introduce a printer as a product um, for industrial consumers or, or something of that nature? Yeah, so I'm going to, at the, at the risk of sounding like a Or can you not say? No, 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 no. I, I, I'm happy to, to share what you know, our, our, kind of a part of our plans here. But um, you know, I, I'll go back to you know, how do we lower barriers of adoption, uh, which you know, the driving force behind you know, earlier in polymers was high, but in metals it's even higher, just because the barriers of, of adoption for metals is really, really, really challenging. You know, on the one hand, you have quite expensive equipment. But I, I actually believe in, in additive um, that the bigger challenge is if you end up encumbering end users, designers, engineers uh, with these million dollar pieces of metal AM equipment that exists today, um, what you're in effect asking them to do is figure out the business case for how to utilize that equipment 
and to develop applications um, in a way where they have to understand the process, they have to understand the design limitations, um, and that ends up being something that grinds their development to a halt and does, just doesn't really open up the, the solution space for those, those folks. And so we were very deliberate when we started Hollow to be a service provider because what we ultimately wanted to do was um, give access to metal additive to folks uh, without having being encumbered with developing all of that process skill and knowledge and buying that equipment. Um, and what we're seeing is a lot of customers from a range of different industries, medical, consumer electronics, aerospace, semiconductor, um, coming to us and gaining access to our technology, um, being able to receive prototypes on you know, a turn time of a, a two weeks or less um, and learn how to design for our technology but without having to be encumbered with the hardware itself. Um, and that works for prototyping, right? So you know, we, when we're working with our customers, we're working with them in a way where it's not like a, um, a service bureau. Uh, what we are doing is we're working intimately with our customers and the design engineers on product development um, such that they can design their parts, iterations on those parts, new versions, and use our technology to, to get quick learning cycles on what they need. And they can scale with us. They can, they can either scale with us all the way through to production or because... Um, our technology simulates metal injection molding, they could use us to a, as a bridge to MIM. So to answer your question, Max, um, because we are a, a, a technology that really does look like MIM on the back end, we plan to um, collaborate with and partner with uh, folks who have sintering capabilities, metal injection molding houses, contract manufacturers, in order to scale up those production needs of our customers uh, so that um, those who have additional capacity, those who have expertise, can help take the volumes of hundreds of thousands of parts that we can do from our facility here in Silicon Valley to the millions of parts that MIM is, is used to doing. Yeah, because like, uh, there, okay, but to go back, like, why would you do that? I mean, there, there's a, there, you said the time frame, <laughs> but there's also like a unique advantage, well, uh, Slurry SLA generally, right? For me, I like the fact that you, I see this application space kind of thing and the, or, or the solution space kind of thing as well. And if I'm looking at, I'm looking, always looking at it from the point of the view of the customer, right? So for me, if we end up at Slurry SLA, it's got to be like a part that either has to be really smooth or very detailed and relatively expensive and around like, let's say a couple of centimeters. Uh, right. Uh, in uh, in in dimension, right? And then uniquely, if we have like internal channels or other stuff, then slurry SLA all of a sudden like becomes like mega advantage, advantageous, right? Are there? Could you tell us a little bit more about when this technology makes more sense than anything else? Because I think it's it's uh, you know it, there's a, there's a gray area where binder jet and this and a bunch of other stuff kind of competes, and then there's also things that, that where this technology uh, really really shines, right? Yeah, and and I, what I will say is you know we're, we're really not going after the, the same type of parts that binder jetting is doing or powder bed fusion. And, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, the, the kind of parts that we are seeing, the kind of customers that are coming to us uh, are those who are either going to Swiss CNC, so precision CNC, or ultimately 
metal injection molding. Um, and the difference with those kind of parts is they do tend to be on the smaller side, kind of soft, you know, softball, golf ball size or, or smaller. Uh, but they have um, very intricate geometries, internal channels, um, smooth surfaces, like you said. Um, but probably even more so is, uh, as I alluded to earlier, these types of components have tolerances which are on the order of you know, 25 microns, 50 microns in a dimension. They have features that are 100, 100 150 micron internal channels, 50 micron you know, positive features, um, all of which are really even pushing the limits of traditional manufacturing like, like Swiss CNC. And then you look at something like creating a tool for in metal injection molding for a geometry like that, and it gets incredibly expensive. And the question, you know, the age-old question in, in tool-based technologies is, well, when do you break even and at what volume? And so it's really in that high-complexity uh, parts that have individual features which are of high resolution and a requirement of um, these high res uh, the high tolerances, uh, you know, the, the tight tolerances, is where we're, we're really seeing the value in what we're able to provide for our, our customers. And the parts that we're producing out of the furnace, um, you know, we ship. We just, we, there is no secondary operations required. So our surface... Oh, there's no cleanup, there's no nothing on the surfaces? No. no. What about no. going from the, from the printer to the furnace? Also no? Uh, we just we wash that in uh, in a solvent as you would a, a normal SLA part. Uh, there's no depowdering, um, so the, the, there's no powder in the printers. I mean, the, the powder in the slurry, but there's no powder handling anywhere in our process. Um, but you know, with the parts, you know, we, we get surface roughness on the order of one and a half to two microns RA, um, and and that is something where you know t what we are hearing from our customers is the ability to deliver on parts like that in a short lead time without secondary operations is, is where they get both a cost benefit and a design utility benefit. Yeah. I think that's beautiful because that means that in a kind of tight squeeze, there's like somebody's going to need a bridge manufacturing solution at one point, and that could mean millions of parts like this. So right. you could just like do this all day, like, oh, I'll make a thousand of this and 10 of these. And then at one point... <laughs> You're going to end up with something gigantic, like a heat sink for an iPhone or something like that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, seriously. No, I mean, I mean, we what we're, I mean, we are having conversations in each three of those, each of each of those buckets you've described. You know, mm -hmm. large yeah. part of our business today is is that prototyping. We are, you know, there are bridge manufacturing applications and and then mass production applications as well. And the thing also, you know, that I've been thinking about more and more is that I wonder how many, you know, 10,000 piece, 20,000 piece um, MIM parts that MIM, MIM contract manufacturers are turning away because it just doesn't make financial sense, right? Right. There's a number of, there's, exactly. But those are viable. There's a viable for our technology, and they you pay them for those leads. With them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very practical, man. Right? Send me a guy; I'll give 500 bucks per guy. Whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, this is where I think there is a there is you know we 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 fundamentally believe in 
enablement of this technology. And, and we don't see ourselves as competitors to MIM. We see ourselves as people, as, as a company that can broaden the application of MIM type mm-hmm. technology and MIM type parts. So, so and one other thing is like when you guys are started, you were literally saying we do do copper, right? Mm-hmm. And we're doing heat sinks. And I was done. I'm like, yep, that's it. Perfect. Oh my that's God. This yeah, that's all you right? need. <laughs> and, and, and so I was um, quite, because copper is very difficult. We can theoretically do it with uh, a BMIT or BMIT. Well, actually, literally with BMIT, but other people can do it too with the EBM. It's really difficult with a lot of other processes. So, um, and, and heat sinks are one of the things, heat exchanger heat sinks are one of the things that are, um, you know, really great applications, a lot of surface area you can unlock there as long as you got the wall thickness and you guys can do the wall thickness. I was like, oh my God, this is beautiful, right? But now all of a sudden, if you go to your website now, right, you've got all these stainless steel parts, you've got also copper stuff, but you're doing a lot more. And I'm, I'm like, I was really, because I thought of you guys as like the, these guys are going to industrialize heat sinks, that's it, you know, in copper, right? But now you're doing a lot more, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so you know, the 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 nice thing about being a, a, a service provider, solution provider, is we can be very deliberate and intentional with the markets that we go into based on market pull, and and that that also goes into how we invest in our technology too. You know, which materials do we bring online? So our starting point, you know, we had a number of different industrial customers come to us and and ask about pure copper and thermal solutions, cooling solutions. And what we did there was um, we developed copper and we got to you know 95% conductivity. Um, and like you said, we were able to do these fine features, which allowed us to um, design um, these, these highly complex liquid coolers and air coolers. Um, the challenge yeah, so and, and that's been a, a great part of a, a, our business and, and it's been growing from cooling of CPUs and GPUs to uh, some more exotic applications in aerospace and, and data center um, applications there. The, 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 the challenge there, however, is there's a, a very big design component in that. There's a, a great deal of expertise that's required um, on on both sides of the house, uh, you know, on on our customer side and our sides, on designing uh, these high performance devices and making it very specific for the application, which is which is great, and it's like I say, it's a big part of, of what we do today. But then all of a sudden, um, a year or so ago, we found people coming to us from from the MIM world and or people who are making parts for MIM, and in that situation what we found was actually a very different um use case right so in in that first use case in in cooling we're talking about really the benefits that we all espouse about additive it's design freedom it's using that design to to create highly complex geometries and those geometries giving us performance and therefore that creates value you know we, we talk about that all day long the, the flip side of that is that it requires a high degree level of expertise and also the need for that level of performance. On the other side, you have people who have already got components that they have designed for traditional manufacturing, but because of various, various reasons like supply chain challenges that we've experienced the last uh, couple of years, or um, not having the business case to cut a MIM tool, but requiring that fidelity, um, they, they just want to get the parts made. 
And we found a sweet spot in the technology that we have to be able to provide a service um, for those kinds of people. And as we've done more and more work in uh, working with, let's call it quote unquote, traditionally designed components, we've been able to also expand their design horizons by educating them through uh, the work that we do for them. So what I'm trying to describe is, you know, copper has been, copper is a, a fantastic opportunity, but requires a lot of additive design knowledge. And these micro AM components and stainless steel uh, and other materials are, it's more about transitioning people from traditional manufacturing to AM, but without having to modify their designs, which again, I hate to say it, guys, lowers the barriers of adoption. I think you guys have a huge potential. I've been, I've been calling you guys one of my favorite three printing startups for, for a long time now. I think the, the, the potential for is, is really there. What do you yourself uh, hope to achieve in the next couple of years? Yeah, so um, you know, the main thing for us is really scaling some of these applications into production. Um, I I've feel quite strongly that we have a technology here, we have a business model here that's going to enable us to produce parts, uh, metal AM parts that are going to be on the shelves. You know, we, we have a cost structure that allows us to scale these into production to com compete from a cost perspective uh, with MIM and machining. So I feel that we're going to be taking the, the customers that we have into production, getting those parts on, you know, getting those products on shelves with uh, metal AM components. And at the same time, not just doing that with ourselves, but I fundamentally believe in a rising tide lifting all boats is working with and building out a network of partners and collaborators across the manufacturing field uh, to collaborate with us in order to, to scale up this technology with their expertise and their customers as well. Okay. I think you're just going to hang in there and then Apple's going to buy you and make a thinner eye watch or whatever. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're going to figure out how to do liquid metal like using this technology. You know? well, then we'll have really? a conversation in five years, Joris, after I spun that company out as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the T5000 foam, right? It yeah. just morphs. Uh, <laughs> seriously, I think, I think the beautiful thing about the technology or you guys as a company is it's going to there's going to be a point where a giant company needs a really specific micro manufacturing challenge and they're not going to be able to solve it. And it's going to be like something like the thinness of a phone or, or some processor overheating, but it's faster than all the other ones, that kind of stuff. And, and we've seen companies like Apple do crazy stuff uh, with this, like, uh, you know, as in, uh, you know, thousands of uh, CNC machines or whatever. I don't know. They do insane stuff. I think it's possible. Anyway. Uh, thank you so wait, much, Aaron. The, wait, wait, what's the website so that if anyone wants to get a part made, where should yes. they go? So please, yeah, please, uh, for those listening, if you do want to reach out to us, um, www.holoam, so that's am for mother, dot com. Or um, if you go on LinkedIn, uh, as you may have just seen this week, we hired uh, Jason Bassey as our new VP of, of sales. And so you can reach out to him as well uh, via LinkedIn. Cool. All right, Arian, thank you so much for being here uh, today. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for giving me the time. Uh, you know, I always love geeking out with, with folks in the know. Cool, cool. And uh, Max, thank you for being here again. My pleasure. You know, I love geeking out too. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all do. I think we all do. And thank you for listening because you love geeking out too. And uh, have a wonderful day. 
You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.